We continue with our studies through the book of Romans. And today we come to Romans 29, verse, uh, part B. So we had divided up Romans 8, 29 into two parts. And today we consider the second part. But I would like us to read Romans 8, 18 to 30 to give us the context in which verse 29B is drawn. So kindly turn there. Romans 8, 18. Please hear the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with the eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the world creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Lord, we praise your name for your word. And our prayer is that you may give success to your word in our, in our souls. Help us to hear the voice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of his flock. We thank you, Lord, that you are present with us to save. Show yourself gracious and be magnified in the hearing and the preaching of your word. Grant that your spirit would enable me to clearly, uh, simply, profoundly, powerfully with the unction from above, bring your word to your people, to the glory of your name. Amen. Hmm. The Bible says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the likeness or to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God knows what he is doing with you as his child if you are saved. And so every single event, every experience, every step you take, every breath is well calculated, it's well measured to accomplish for your soul eternal good if God has called you according to his purpose. So what I'm saying is this, that the God who foreknew you and the God who predestined you, God who elected you before the foundation of the world, set you on a journey. And this journey is not going to be stopped until you get to your destiny. The journey is not going to be aborted. The journey will come to fruition. And according to verse 28, the journey is going to end up with all things accomplishing the good for which God had purposed for you. And the question today then is, okay, I hear that God has meticulously planned to an end, uh, uh, all things to an end. And the question is, what is that good? What is that end? What is that eternal good? It is stated here. It is to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. What this means is that the foreknowledge and the predestination we spoke about last Sunday is a train moving towards a specific direction, conformation to Christ, leading to the final destination, the final station. And that is glorification. But then I ask you, hey, boys and girls, have you boarded this train? Are you in this bus going to the celestial city? How do you know? How do you know whether you're going to heaven or not? So I have a few questions to ask as we consider this whole subject of being conformed to the image of Christ. Question number one is, how do you know that you are predestined? Paul tells the Thessalonians that, brothers, we know that God has chosen you. Paul could know that there were people in, at the church in Thessalonica that were chosen. 
because of the way you received the word. When you heard the word, you did not hear the voice of Paul or the voice of Morungi. You did not receive the word of God as from men, but as what it really is, the word of God. But is that the only way by which we can know whether God has predestined us or has foreknown us? He has predestined us. He has elected us. He has chosen us. All those words of those eternal events that God the Father did out of his love in the eternity past. When God did that, can that be known by a mortal man now in here? Is it possible? It begins with giving us, the verse gives us the reason for God's for knowledge and predestination. It is to be conformed to the image of his son. God loved us before the foundation of the world. In the beloved, he chose us in him, in Christ. Ephesians. One is where I am. He then predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then he goes on to say, in him we have redemption through his blood. So all we are and all we have as Christians is all because of that preposition in Christ. And you can describe yourself as a believer as one who is in Christ. So our union with Christ brings every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places including, number one, being chosen of God and being predestined. <clears throat> these are the blessings, these are the, the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And so our union with Christ is the very basis, it's the very foundation of every blessing that we enjoy in our Christian living in Christ's kingdom. Unless you're united with Christ, unless you're united with Christ, there's no way of knowing if you are predestined by God and chosen in Christ. It's not possible. So those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. They who are united to Christ, as we will see later, are effectually called by the gospel and the spirit. They are regenerated by the spirit and are given a new heart and a new spirit is created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. And this same group of people, the exact group of people, is further sanctified. Sanctified really and sanctified personally through the same virtue. Again, by his spirit and by his word. 
dwelling in them. And you can see that in John 17, verse 17, as the Lord prays that high priestly prayer. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 to 19. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 and 23. And this is what I'm saying. And this is not the main point, that the Spirit destroys the dominion of the, or dominion of the world body of sin. Because you remember Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion in you. Remember that? Or over you. Sin will not continue to rule over you. So all the lusts of the flesh are increasingly weakened and mortified, or they are killed. For all those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Christians more and more are quickened or they are made alive with Christ and they are strengthened in all saving graces to live a holy life. Because remember again, Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Christ for a purpose, to be holy and blameless before him. And then he goes on to say, in love, he predestined us. So that, that, that whole understanding that we are in Christ or united with Christ to be like Christ runs through Paul's writings in the New Testament. Not just Paul, but also the author of Hebrews. Because he says in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What a great and immense privilege to know that God spread out that plan of redemption. You know, his foreknowledge, his predestination, his choice, his election, he spread it out in love for us. In the eternity past, and we saw that it covers all time in one act. And then God, in his love, in his everlasting love, identified and chose me and you who are in Christ. Not because we had done anything, not because we could ever do anything, but because of his great love with which he loved us. And you see, the Father chose us in Christ to be like Christ. God knew everyone of us in advance. And he did not only know us in terms of knowledge, as we saw again last Sunday, but in affection. He knew us in affection, just like Adam knew his wife. So also God knew us. He entered, he brought us into this affectionate relationship with him. The best affection there is. He established the best relationship of love there is. And he effectively committed to loving us like he loves his son. 
and not just loving us for a period, but loving us from the eternity past to the eternity to come. Is there anything better than that? Is there anyone else who loves you like that? I know, dear ladies, wives, that your husbands love you, but there was a time when they didn't love you. Before they knew you, they didn't love you. They didn't know that you existed. But Christ loved us way before even the foundation of the world existed. What is better than this love? What manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God? And there are people here who are not in this love. You are not saved. You're not in Christ. I ask you, why? What are you waiting for? If God predestined you, then he gave you to his son. And he gave you to his son to be like his son. And we know this because, as we shall see next, you shall be transformed and be conformed to the image, to the likeness of his son. So the second question is, how can you be sure that right now you are being transformed, being conformed to the image of his son, the image of Christ? How can you be sure? The journey of transformation so that one, as a child of God, is conformed to the image of Christ is a lifelong journey of sanctification. It takes place by the power of the Spirit. The work of sanctification is the wonderful process of being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, His Son. It's a continuous, transformative process that occurs because of God's eternal love, because of being in Christ, because of your faith in Christ that receives. God's love because of the help and the comfort of the Spirit. So when you believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord of your soul, it's only because of the Holy Spirit who gives you that desire, that spiritual life, that willingness to be in Christ. So as He regenerates you, gives you life, he sends you to Christ. Remember what he did with Lazarus in the grave? Lazarus dead. The life-giving spirit came upon Lazarus when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the spirit who gave him life also gave him life to go in which direction? Towards Christ. So how does this transformation happen? It happens as a, as a believer grows in their, in their knowledge of Christ. As you grow in grace, as you grow in your understanding, as you grow in Christ, knowing him more and better, 
you begin to exhibit qualities and characteristics that Jesus demonstrated during his time on earth. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against which there is no law. And you would see that again in, in 2 Peter 1. Where Peter says that because you have been made partakers of divine nature, you are now to be supplementing your faith in Christ with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with steadfastness and steadfastness with self-control and self-control with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Then he says, if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. When, we, when theologians cons have considered this golden chain of salvation, many have struggled to see sanctification in the chain. But there it is, being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if you will be conformed to the likeness of Christ, you must be willing to put off the old self and put on the new self. If these things are not happening to you in a way that you can quantify, then I ask, are you not being ineffective and unfruitful? Are you not being short-sighted? That's a language of 2 Peter 1. They're putting off the old self, the old sinful behavior and attitudes and putting on righteous one. This, this is a continuous process. I'm not in any way saying that you would be perfect right now. I'm saying that you are being perfected. I'm not saying that you are perfectly holy right now. I'm saying that you've already been set apart by God for God. That is holiness, and you are in the process of being purified. So that when, when you go through suffering, Peter says, those various trials are supposed to have this effect. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, may resort to the praise at his revelation. So, this is a continual process that occurs throughout one's lifetime. And it requires the believer to continually submit to the Holy Spirit's leading and guidance in His Word, in the Scriptures. Because the Bible is clear. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is what is happening. And I'm asking you, dear believer, my brother, my sister, is this happening in your life? Have you seen any transformation in your life? What is the evidence that you are now a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works? How, how do you think? Is your mind being renewed? 
What are your plans and ambitions? Do they reflect a citizen of the kingdom of God? How do you spend your time and money? Is it in debauchery or is it in, in pursuit of holiness? How much do you care for the glory of God with your time and with your money? How do you love your neighbor? Is it in word only, but also in deed? I ask you, is there any war between your spirit and your flesh? Is there any war between flesh and its lust against the spirit and your spirit? Because unless this war exists in your life, it is possible that you are conforming to the patterns of the world instead of conforming to the image of Christ. So the Bible says in Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the way you know that you are progressing. That the sins that you struggled with when you believed in Christ are not the same sins, or at least not at the same level, not at the same degree. So many years or months later, can't be. It mustn't be. Because the spirit who is in you is which spirit? The Holy Spirit. How can the Holy Spirit continue to tolerate the same kind of things over and over again without giving you the strength to overcome? It is for sure that even though the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does and will suddenly overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after an heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to us. That must happen. So how can you be sure is that you are growing in knowledge and grace. It is that you are growing, that you are killing sin, that you're becoming more and more like Christ. Perhaps you're not convinced and now you have a why question. Why should you be conformed to the image of Christ? Is the conformation to the image of Christ for the purpose of here on earth or for glory or for both? Now, that's a big question. Because very good theologians are divided on it. Reading various commentaries, I found out that there is a lot of contention here. Men like uh, Lensky, John Murray, Ridabos, Douglas Moo would say, these are big commentators. They would say that what is in view here is what is to come. 
at the revelation of our Savior Jesus Christ. They say that this is the final confirmation which will take place at the last day during the resurrection. They say that the context, especially the wider context, was 11, 21, 23, are talking about the glorious resurrection of the body. And verse 21 is talking about the transformation of the universe. So clearly this is confirmation at the last day. I argue that confirmation is to the image of Christ must be a reference to the resurrection day. And I'm saying, I don't agree. And actually you would know that I don't agree with that view based on what I've said so far. And I also do have a good group of men on my side. Uh, John Calvin, Cranfield, Robertson, Edrickson, Hodge. These are also good theologians. And they say it's both. It's a confirmation happening right now, leading to the ultimate confirmation to the image of Christ in glorification. So it's not just glorification, but the now, the ongoing work of Christ in us. And now the onus is on me to show you from the text that this is so. There is sufficient truth on our side to show that there is textual and contextual evidence to support a wider understanding of conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn from the dead. So again, I think you need to understand that I'm saying that verse or that statement is taken to be either only eschatological, that it's going to happen at the revelation of Christ, or it's taken to mean that it's sanctification going on right now the work of God in us and will ultimately be in glory as well, which is the position that I want to show you. The text before us, uh, let me say that I agree that there is a lot of verses in chapter 8 that have that eschatological expectation. Like I've already pointed out, verse 11, uh, verse 21, which speaks of a creation. Verse 23, that speaks of us uh, having this hope. Uh, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. No doubt. That is speaking about eschatological or the very last conclusion of our sanctification in glorification. But if you look at the immediate context, it takes us back to what? To foreknowledge, doesn't it? It, takes, it moves us into calling justification and then glorification. So we have both bookends, we have both brackets. The foreknowledge, 
and the glorification here. But there is something in between that cannot be ignored, including calling and justification. And I believe that that's where we are and we are eventually added to glorification. So we cannot ignore the immediate context of verse 29 and 30 to only think about verse 11 and 21 and 23. We have to take them all into consideration. And so it's not necessary to limit the meaning of being conformed to the image of Christ to only meaning glorification. Because the saved must resemble the same. Christians must resemble Christ. We must be conformed to the likeness of our elder brother. This is the point. So this then speaks of what is called the progressive sanctification leading to the ultimate goal realized in glory. So it's not either or, it is both. Again, we ask the question, what is this image of his son in mind? What is this likeness of Christ? And I would say that it is at least two things. It is his character, and it is also his suffering. And all things that show Christ in our lives. But let me just limit myself to his character and his suffering. And again, I want to appeal to a very godly man here, Robert Alden. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ is the first elect of God. And so he is the model after which all the elect of God must be formed. Man was created in the image of God. But when sin entered, he lost that image. And so we read, Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image. Therefore communicating that his generation, his posterity, his, uh, his children, his sinned, his offspring is corrupted in nature. But then, as God and determined to save a part of the fallen race, it was according to his good pleasure to renew his image in those whom he had chosen to this salvation. And therefore, Jesus became, Jesus, the Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And when Jesus took our likeness, then it was so that we also may take his likeness and become sons of God and be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided, remember that verse? Provided we suffer with him. 
So, Jesus Christ became a son of man, who is the brightness of his glory and the, the exact imprint of his nature. So, brothers, having been adopted into God's family, that is when you, when you believed, and having become a child of God, and Christ having become the firstborn among many, many sons, how can we not look like him? How can we not look like him? We should look like Christ and bear his image. And what does this consist? It is the, that the Bible says we are made partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Second Peter 1 verse 4. You cannot, you cannot tear these apart. They are all connected. To become partakers of divine nature is also to escape the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. We are daily being renewed after the image of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Paul tells the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 24. And remember, this is, this is after saying, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, you are dead. And then you have been made alive together with Christ. And you have been seated with Christ where? In the heavenly places. Come on, how can you be seated in the heavenly places looking like son of Adam? You would be like that man who was in the wedding without, without the, the, the clothes, the wedding dress. It would not work. You would be thrown out. But then he says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been made alive with Christ because of God's great love with which he loved us and because of his great mercy. By grace, you are saved. And then he goes to verse 10. For you are God's workmanship created in, please don't ever skip that preposition, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created for you when? Beforehand to walk in them. What is that beforehand? Is it just beforehand, when, just before you are saved? No, it goes beyond that. So we wear the image of Christ today. We do. For we have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ. What about in suffering? It has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer with him. The man of sorrow who suffered for us, suffered so that we also would desire to know him and fellowship in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so that we may attend to the resurrection of the dead. We bear our own cross and follow him. And it is true that being God's children and heirs of God, 
and fellow heirs with Christ, it is provided, it is conditioned that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That's what we read in verse 17. So then a time will come when even our own lowly bodies shall be transformed to be like Christ after resurrection. We shall be made to wear all celestial properties. Do you know what that means? We shall be made to have all the heavenly characteristics in Christ. We shall be transformed. Bible says, in a twinkling of an eye, the mortal shall put on immortality. The perishable shall put on the imperishable. The corruptible shall put on the incorruptible. In a twinkling of an eye, we shall, believers, we shall all wear celestial properties and character. And all the sufferings here below will be gone. You know, there will be no one who will, who, will, who will be sick in glory. There is no cold in the celestial setting. There is no flu in heaven. You know that. There is no virus that is wayward in glory. Now. That time, when that time comes, death will be vanquished. All corruption will be gone. Death will not come upon us. For all the enemies of our souls will be vanquished by the great Savior of our souls, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then notice what the, the verse goes on to say. All that is happening so that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here is the reason for being conformed to the likeness of Christ. It is so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ's death, like that of a seed, bringing, brings much fruit. Yes, when he should make his soul, the Bible says, an offering for sin, he should see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And that by the knowledge of him, many, Many should be justified. Yes. The captain of our salvation planned to bring many sons to glory. And he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. But the point is, it's not that he shall be the firstborn among many brothers. I mean, it's not that he shall be the firstborn am uh, among several brothers or among few brothers. It is among Many brothers, which means we can still go to the streets and tell people of the love of God and that the banquet hall is still not full. They can come. And so the Lord has still told us, go to every street, go to the west, go to the north, go to the east, go to the south, bring them in because His grace is still sufficient. He is still able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near him through faith. And what does it mean that he is the image, that uh, he is the firstborn? What does it mean? 
And this is not the first place where that word is used. The Bible says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, this is Colossians, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the firstborn among many brothers in his humanity since he was already the first. He is our head, our Lord. We must bow before the Lord and submit to his wise decrees as king. When he is called the firstborn, that's not a title to diminish him. Rather, it is a title of showing his preeminence. And that's where the cults get it wrong. The Mormons get it wrong. When they read the firstborn, they are immediately, they stumble. But that title, the firstborn, is not a title to reduce his deity or to reduce his position or to reduce his rule as the king or as the king of kings. Rather, it is a title to exalt his preeminence because the Bible says he is the first. He is the first and he is the last because he is the alpha and he is the omega. He is the principal. He is the most excellent. He is the high and the loftiest. He is the Lord of all. Being the firstborn, he has authority over the brethren. This is why you and I must all be conformed to his image. Because it's such an honorable and exalted image. We must be his little brothers. And he must be our big brother. And with a joy to know that we are many brothers. Many brothers. And you notice that in this sense, God has no daughters. Remember that? Romans 8 shows very clearly that God has no daughters. He has no daughters. What does that mean? It means that everyone who is in Christ is our son. And therefore, thank you, therefore, here. Daughters are not given inheritance. But when daughters of Zion, let me re 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 rephrase that. Daughters of Zion are sons. In case you didn't know, he is the firstborn, not among many brothers and sisters. There are some versions that take that down and they want to translate brethren, brothers and sisters. Yes, it has that connotation of brothers and sisters, but that word is used in a technical sense to refer to those who will inherit salvation. I don't think you're following me. I was just about to conclude, but let me just say this. 
the Bible, and especially if you look at this Romans 8, which is meant to give you assurance, it calls you, dear sister, God's son. And in the verse before us, it calls you brother. And that's not a mistake. This is not trying to do away with gender distinctives or distinctions. Rather, it is to say that you have been given a new position in the kingdom of God. Which is that position? It is the position of being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the gospel turns you sisters into brothers. Amen to that. And what that means is that then you become a son of God inheriting his salvation. Because you realize that boys are also not heirs. They have to be sons. And they become sons when they grow up. And so then even our sisters, you are being told here in chapter 8 that you are no longer a daughter, so to speak, but really a son of God because you are heir of God. Because you are among the many brothers with Christ Jesus being the firstborn and being the being the firstborn among many brothers what a joy what a joy to know that we are many brothers what a joy to know that everyone who is united in Christ is included what a joy to know that we all bear the image of our firstborn Christ Amen? Let's rise up to praise His name.